I am currently preaching on the book of Revelation here at our church. I, it's the third time so I've been at the church for three years now. I was blessed enough to get to start at this church two months before COVID started. And we walked through all of that together in my first year, first year and a half. But for whatever reason, the Lord keeps bringing me back to the book of Revelation. I've never preached out of this book, at least systematically, like I'm doing right now. And I always go into it kind of kicking and screaming for several reasons. One is it's it's a lot of work, as many of you know more about than I do. <laughs> it, 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 this isn't something you just get up and talk about. Not that I would do that, but you know, <laughs> but there, there, there is a lot of exegetical work involved, and uh, we have to do our work well all the time. But this book presents some unique challenges. Obviously, Tim LaHaye hasn't helped us very much on that front. Unfortunately, most of our people have been educated by him, and I'm afraid they missed a point. I I read some quotes uh, as I studied for this book. I read a great book while I'm reading it by Michael Gorman. In fact, I have it right here. Uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Hmm. Dr. Busick recommended it to me, and it's been a great help. Um, I like uh, Eldon. I think it's George Eldon Ladd. I like his commentary as well on the book of Revelation. So, They've missed some sources, but in Gorman's book, he he listed some quotes that I found pretty interesting. He's uh, Thomas Paine once said, "Revelation is a book of riddles that requires a revelation to explain it." <laughs> Frederick Nietzsche, uh, you can probably imagine where he might go with something like this. He said, "It's the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all history." And then George Bernard Shaw says it's the curious record of the visions of a drug addict. So that tells us what some of the people in the world think about this book. I think it's interesting, and I'm a little nervous about what I'm about to say because there's a lot of scholars on the call, and I haven't taken time to independently verify this, but I, I was listening to something here recently. It was a reputable podcast, said that Revelation was... I believe they said it was the last book allowed into the canon. So I'll, I'll allow somebody to shoot that down if they want to, because uh, I have not independently verified that. I did a quick search this morning and uh, on the internet, and since everything's on the internet, it's true. We know it's right. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I and they verified that it was at least one of the last ones. So I, again, I'm not going to die on that hill, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. Because the more that I'm reading the book of Revelation, I'm almost repenting that it's taken me this long to really dive into this book. Because, and I shared this with our congregation a couple of weeks ago, I don't know that you can say one book of the Bible is the most important because they're all obviously very important. But maybe for our day, I could say the book of Revelation might be one of the key books that we need to be diving into. The, the more I read the book of Revelation, I, I'm really beginning to see it as a discipleship manual hmm. for a church, uh, especially in the kinds of days that we're living in. And, you know, the first century, obviously, the, the kind of days they were living in. Uh, I see it as a discipleship manual for people who really want to follow the lamb in a beast-like world led by the dragon, the devil. And the more I look at this book through those lenses, the more this book begins to make sense for me. Um, 
too many people get wrapped up trying to grab the latest headline and, and fit it into the book of Revelation. I, that just was not at all the intention. I'm sure we all agree with that. Uh, but for me also, and in this context, um, for me, I believe it's a handbook for a pastor who wants to be a missional pastor. And I'd like to unlock why, why I believe that. Let me give you my definition of a missional pastor. My definition of a missional pastor, get ready to write this down because this is pretty profound, is a pastor who is consumed with the mission. And if it doesn't begin there and if it doesn't end there, I, I don't think we can even begin to talk about missional churches. We talk a lot about missional churches today. It's the buzzword, and I don't like buzzwords, but uh, I believe it might be better to talk about missionary pastors. When I did my dissertation for Asbury, um, I talked about John Wesley's approach and 21st century postmodernism. And one of the conclusions I came to was that pastors today need to be missionary pastors. I've always believed in reaching the loss. That's been a key part of who I am. But that work I did for the dissertation at Asbury really kind of began to take it to a new level. And then I hung out with Mark Bain for two years and it went off the map from there. And well, I better I better stay on my track here. Um, so one of the things about being a missional pastor that ties into Revelation for me is I believe you have to really be willing to count the cost to be a missional pastor. Uh, I believe being a missional pastor, I, you got to think it, you got to eat it, you got to sleep it, you got to drink it. It just it just has to constant. Everything we do has to filter through those lenses. And even board meetings can take on a, a new level of meaning if this becomes our passion. Uh, the problem is, is that maintenance is always screaming for attention. And I, I'm telling people now, if you don't believe that, just watch what happens the next time you go to a board meeting and a question comes up whether or not to make a building improvement or to make a mission expenditure. The building improvement, in a lot of contexts I have been in, takes about as long to get approved as it does to get it out of your mouth if there's money for it. The, the mission expenditure will often require reasons and explanations and org charts and receipts down to the last penny. And I, I want you to know I'm not against any of that. And I might be overstating it a little bit, but I will tell you in my experience that that's a little bit of what I of what I've had. I, and I get it a little bit when you when you make a building repair, you see it right there. It's just immediate and you get kind of some immediate gratification. But you might do mission work for years before it pays off, and it's easy to get discouraged. So thankfully, the Lord's given us some pretty quick success on that front here, and I give him all the, the credit for that. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about this idea from the book of Revelation about what a missional pastor looks like. John, of course, you know, the revelation came to John while he was on the island of Patmos. And in Revelation 1.9, it says he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the older I get, the more I choke up when I read passages like that, because it's easy to just 
kind of glance over that, but he was on the island of Patmos. He's in his 90s, I think, at this point. I mean, it, he was probably in his 30s when he followed Jesus. It's about 60 years later, so I'm not a mathematician, but I, I think I'm probably pretty close there. In his 90s, and he's still holding true to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, no matter what he's going through. Revelation 1.5 says Jesus is the faithful witness. And for me, that verse is kind of like the key verse to the whole book of Revelation. It's about being a faithful witness, no matter what the cost. And of course, we know the cost is worth it because we win in the end as we go through Revelation. Revelation 2.13, Antipas gets his name mentioned for being a faithful witness who died in the city where Satan lives. So this week I'm preaching on Revelation 6, the six seals. Not, okay. I, I thought I nearly lost my mind for doing this as I started, but the Lord's finally given me some clarity on this. Uh, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, just really, um, the, the Lord captured me with these verses. It says, when he opened the fifth, when he, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice. So even in heaven, they're still crying. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Dr. Sherwood gave a great message. All of them have been great. Um, but last night about the call and the cost and following Jesus. And, and there it is. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I, 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 I have liked Andy Stanley a lot over the years, but I, I'm really concerned, and I really think he's missing it on some crucial issues now. And I'm not here to pick on Andy. I, I don't like to be picked on when I'm not around, so that's not the purpose. But I, I'm hearing a lot of this today, and in this context, I think it's okay to to talk about it. He says that um, we don't need we don't need to tell people we believe what we believe because the Bible says so because they didn't have the bible like we have it today. I I, I watched that on online, so that that's a direct quote. You know, on a literal level, they didn't have the bible like we have it today. Obviously, we know that. That wasn't until the canon was approved 364, 400 years later. However, these folks died for the Word of God. I don't know why you die for something if it's, <laughs> if it's not the authoritative place that we go for our doctrine and our practice. Uh, I'm actually feeling a little bad for bringing Andy's name up. I, I apologize if that rubs some people wrong. I'm not here to pick on Andy. I just that, that just I'm just very concerned by it. Uh, so in this vision, John sees the souls of the martyrs of the faith. They're they're praying for justice. Uh, in Dr. Sherwood's Monday message, he talked about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I read that prayer, I, I almost hear them praying that, God, when will you, uh, when will you bring justice? When, when will the beast, when will the dragon be dealt with? When will you reign on earth in your, 
new heaven and new earth from your new Jerusalem. When's it going to happen? And sometimes for me, the most difficult answers I get to prayer are not the times when I don't get an answer. Sometimes it's when I do get the answer. Because look at the answer Jesus gives them there. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I don't mean to get too heavy at the devotional here today, but that's that's us. That that's our generation. That's every generation that's followed. And, and again, this you'll see in a moment. This is critical to me when I think about being a missional pastor. That to me, this is the heartbeat of it. Um, methods and techniques and mission statements. You know, they're needed. Um, but without this, none of that stuff is going anywhere. Some believe that the altar in this passage represents the altar of burnt offering in the Old Testament. Um, again, I'll leave that up to the scholars to, to make a final call on. You might not be surprised to know there's a lot of debate <laughs> on, on what that actually is. Uh, if it is the altar of burnt offering from the temple that's represented there, there's two possible wonderful analogies. One is that they're covered by the blood of the Lamb of God themselves in heaven. Or two, it could be representing the blood that they have spilled and the blood of all the saints that are going to lay down their lives in the future. So having said all that, let me wrap up with what I believe are three marks of a missional leader. The first mark for me is they have to believe in Jesus. And I, and I know that that sounds trite, uh, probably, but let me say this. We have to really believe in Jesus. And sometimes I have to ask myself the question, how much is the mission costing me these days? How much is the mission costing me these days? Because I tell my church regularly, and I got past the two-year review even after saying this, but I, I, I said, you know, if you really get engaged in the mission, it's going to mess up your budget. It's going to mess up your schedule. It's going to mess up every part of your life if you really engage in the mission. Uh, it's a lot easier to do maintenance. But, you know, I'm dealing with a situation right now with a with a mother who is repentant over the fact that um, she's allowing her boy to dress as a girl. And I've never had to deal with that before. What, what, what in the world do you do with that? You know, they say they never teach you this stuff in college. Well, how could you teach how to do this stuff in college? You know, I mean, it's just maintenance is easier. Uh, mission gets very, very messy. Secondly, the first one is I have to live like I believe in Jesus. And Jesus tells us, to count the cost. Secondly, I need to suffer like I believe in Jesus. Now, I can't say that I've ever suffered for Jesus, especially when I when I read about people. I I, I try to keep up on a on a little um, app that I have of people who are facing persecution in our world, 
Uh, I don't do it every day, maybe a couple of times a week. I try to read a couple articles. I try to pray for them and uh, just to remind myself that the last um, nasty email I got probably isn't that big a deal. <laughs> Um, if for no other reason than that. But recently, I just went through a round of medical tests, and um, basically, they were checking to see if I had cancer. So the last two or three months, it's always wonderful when you find these things out right before Christmas, <laughs> you know, the timing of it. And so, you know, the rigmarole, two or three months of tests and insurance hassles and things like that. And when it first hit me, I'd love to sit here and say that, man, I was just this rock of faith. But every time I had a pain, I was going to WebMD <laughs> to see, is this a symptom of, you know, what, what they're checking for and things like that. I even had a couple of times where I woke up at 3 a.m. and it was on my mind and I got to check in WebMD again. But the more I, once I got over the initial shock of it and once I started um, praying about it, and let me give the punchline. I, I literally just got the news two days ago that MRIs are clean. Everything's good. So it, everything's fine on that front. So, um, but it was a mortality check. I, I don't think I've ever had that in my life. You know, I, I always preach about heaven and, and things like that. Um, but the good news is, is that once I got over this initial shock, uh, you know, this could happen. You know, who am I? I'm not special. Uh, cancer happens to everybody so, uh, at some level. Uh, I would say to you that the gospel worked very well. And maybe a couple weeks into it, I can't remember the timeline. Um, I was like, God, if, if this is what you have for me, and boy, this pastor Scott knocked this out of the park last night, you know, whether you answer the prayer or you don't answer the prayer, I'm going to follow you and whatever you have in store. And for that reason, um, I may sound crazy. I'm kind of grateful for the last two or three months. My, my faith is stronger because of it. And then last, I would say we have to die like we believe in Jesus. And again, I don't you know, we live in America, land of the free. Uh, some people are going through some tough times in America with economics and, you know, California and places like that, their jobs being sued. So we are seeing some things. I don't know if it'll ever get to the point that we have to make that final decision. But uh, there's a verse that I read and meditate on at least a little bit every day of my life, unless something just blows up. And it's from Paul in Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And I, I would say to you, that's aspirational for me. I, I don't at all think I'm the Apostle Paul, but th this is something I pray regularly that but before I die, <laughs> that I could really say that this is... Uh, this is a testimony of my life. My son went to church with his girlfriend. Uh, she's one of our new heroes. She got him back into church. So he um, came home one day and he said, the pastor said this, and I'd like to close with this. We may not die a martyr's death, but we are call, all called to live a martyr's life. 
So for me, I want to be able to to live that kind of life. And and for me, the everything we do and talk about being missional is pretty hollow unless we can really say that um, that's our goal. And ultimately, we have to be willing to bleed the mission. And whatever the cost, no matter what, as Dr. Sherwood preached to our church last night.